Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Uh, today, we thought we would take a little time to talk about the seven stages of Alzheimer's. It's really easy to see how the seven stages are defined, but I find as a daughter um, of a mom with Alzheimer's, sometimes we're scratching our heads saying, I wonder what stage she's in now um, and really why that matters. So we have asked um, Dr. Zaldi Tan to join us today. He's joining us from Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Dr. Tan, for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Deborah. So, you know, I remember when my mom was um, first diagnosed with Alzheimer's, one of the first thing I did was kind of look up how, what the seven stages are. Um, and really, you know, I, what I found now that I'm, you know, probably, I don't know, six years, seven years into having a mom with Alzheimer's, um, what I find is I'm actually still confused about what stage she's actually in. I mean, it's easier to say early medium or late. Um, but actually, if you said, is she in five, six, uh, four, five, six, I, you know, sometimes she's in four, sometimes she's in five, sometimes she's in six. So how do we actually define or how do we know as caregivers or people who have been diagnosed, what stage we're actually in? Yeah, so I'm glad that the, you asked this question, because one of the things that I found in my practice is that uh, unlike, for example, with cancer or other progressive chronic diseases, people don't think about dementia as stages, when in fact, any progressive chronic disease should be thought of as stages because it really allows us to monitor the symptoms, uh, plan for the future, and for those of us health professionals, help educate families of what to expect next. And I think that is uh, truly important. There are many scales for the different stages of dementia. But um, for, the, for the general caregiver or family members, I really want to really simplify it to, um, to, to thinking of it as a continuum, right? So there is no, the disease doesn't really have uh, stages in say because there's a lot of overlap, but the way to conceptualize it, and I think it's very helpful is to think of it from the, uh, from the perspective of symptoms, common symptoms, and functional symptom, functional deficits that that can occur in that uh, in that stage, and I think this will help uh, the patients and their caregivers to also anticipate uh, the things that they can do and they can do well, safely, effectively, and they should be allowed to do. And there are uh, things that may not be as safe anymore, and therefore they would need to have additional help and assistance. Um, so, of course, the simplest way to think about it is early middle, late. Some people say mild, moderate, severe, but I try to avoid that because when you say you have severe dementia, typically, you know, uh, it's uh, it's a bit a bit uh, disconcerting when in reality, some people in the late stage don't have severe symptoms. They don't have severe psychosocial issues. So I'd like to think, it, think of it as early, uh, mid-stage and late stage, as, as, as we put it. Um, and, and each stage is characterized by different things. Well, and I think what's so tricky is that often the lines are blurred. So take uh, hallucinations, for example. I mean, you know, in some cases they come earlier than in others. Um, but when we're talking about just Alzheimer's disease, not Louis, but not to be confused with, you know, Louis body, which has earlier symptoms of hallucinations. But, uh, you know, when we say hallucinations are present, 
Um, are we talking really about a middle to later stage there, or can you see with all straight Alzheimer's, can you see hallucinations early on? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because hallucinations at baseline, meaning someone is not acutely ill, someone has not just been given a medication that can induce uh, hallucinations. If that's the case, hallucinations really are not expected till perhaps the late middle stage of, of Alzheimer's disease. As you mentioned, uh, other forms of dementia, like Lewy body dementia, can have visual hallucinations even in the early stage of the disease. Um, uh, but but with typical Alzheimer's disease, you don't really expect to see hallucinations till the late middle stage, and and then of course the late stage. Uh, the same thing goes with personality changes. There are certain types of dementia, like frontotemporal dementia, where and oftentimes that is the presenting symptom. Uh, they will not. Uh, the patients will not come to you with uh, with memory per se, uh, because relative to the behavioral or personality change, it may not be as severe, right? So, but in in Alzheimer's, typical Alzheimer's disease, you don't expect personality stage till the middle stages of dementia, uh, which is again very different from, from the temporal. Let Let me just ask you this: Why is it important for us to know what stage? Um, a person is in. So, for example, why is it important for my family to know exactly what stage my mom is in, or is it not? It's extremely important. From a research standpoint, for those of us who are doing research, as you know, clinical trials are aimed specifically at a specific stage of dementia. So a lot of the prevention trials are targeting uh, either MCI stage or very early dementia. So just knowing what uh, cutting edge treatments or research or clinical trials your loved one might be eligible for, it's important to know what stage they're in uh, in order to participate in the uh, scientific process and, and discovery. From a practical standpoint, um, there are characteristics uh, of each stage that will allow one to anticipate the things that they will need and the things that um, that they should be left to do on their own. A good ex example would be driving, right? When you, if you think of dementia, it'd be like driving, stop, take away the car keys. That's a, a generally a good rule, but I can tell you that I have some patients with mild dementia who we reported to the DMV, Department of Public Health, and they got called in for their examination and they passed. And these people have mild dementia and they're still able to drive, you know, short distances in, in good weather, you know, uh, daytime kind of thing. So that's a good example of, um, of some things that may be very important to the patient, but you don't want to take it away if they're still able to do it safely, albeit you have to monitor it. So I, as much as we want to anticipate what the patient will need, we also want to know what they can still do for themselves so that we can allow them as much uh, independence and uh, stage appropriate, uh, you know, uh, ability to do things on their own in their own terms. So I think that's a very practical reason why you would like to know what your what yeah, what's that that definitely makes sense. And we have a question saying, um, like, leaving comorbidities out. Why do some people progress at different speeds through the stages um, than others? So why you know some people maybe uh, have a rapid decline and others it, it not so rapid. Yeah, so you know, I really see that frequently in people who have vascular dementia, for example. Like when patients ask me how long, doc, before this progresses to the next stage, I'd be like, well, it depends, you know, when the next stroke happens. And in fact, we know that a lot of people with, with so called Alzheimer's disease, they actually have mixed dementia. 
So it's not just the, the neurofibrillary tangles and the amyloid plaques that's causing the nerve cells to die, but a lot of them have uh, small strokes that, uh, you know, that they can cause, uh, you know, a change pretty abruptly. But if it's pure Alzheimer's disease, you don't really expect like these abrupt changes. In fact, one of the uh, characteristic uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is this slow smoldering progression where when you ask someone, when did they start getting lost? It'd be like, I don't know, it could be five months or, or two years ago, you know? So it's very, very subtle. But uh, with mixed dementia, it's different, right? So, so vascular dementia actually progresses more rapidly, is that right, than, than straight Alzheimer's? You know, it depends on the type of uh, uh, dementia. For example, uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, right, which is a form of uh, vascular dementia, they can progress more rapidly. But um, this is the, the place where if you have vascular dementia or if you have a mixed dementia where it's Alzheimer's, this is where we can uh, actually do uh, a bit more uh, you know, interventions regarding slowing the progression by controlling cardiovascular risk factors, uh, you know, preventing stroke, putting them on antiplatelet. So uh, that's just one question, one, one reason. The other thing I want to bring up is that hospitalizations are bad for people with dementia. So if you have someone with mild dementia and they get uh, an infection or other reason, or they get a hip fracture, God forbid, and they end up in hospital, then it's shown that once they get out of the hospital, they may not be as uh, able to get back to their to their previous baseline. So that's another reason why someone will progress more rapidly than expected. Yeah, it's um, it, it is it is a bit like solving a mystery, isn't it? It's just you hear so many different cases and different experiences. Um, and you know, to be honest, um, I always kind of thought my mom might have vascular dementia because she wasn't progressing in a way that I thought what I knew of Alzheimer's, but I, I don't say that with any scientific knowledge behind it, you know? So um, in some ways, I guess we're looking emotionally to prepare ourselves. Um, like how rapid is that decline going to be? Do you find that a lot with your patients? I do, I do, because um, but certainly um, caregivers like yourself are looking out for their loved one so that they could be, uh, you know, physically, practically, financially, emotionally prepared for what's to come next. But also, uh, we have to understand that the person with dementia themselves are also going through their own journey. In fact, uh, people with early dementia, I find, um, uh, can become socially isolated if without the support of the caregiver and, and their loved ones. You know, they have, for example, if they have many friends, some those friends, some of the closest one may not be able to deal with the dementia and not be able to adjust to it. And well, some people may. Uh, and uh, in fact, in the early stages of, of dementia, uh, you can anticipate that you're going to lose some friends. Uh, so, and when you get to the middle, middle stage, even more so. So definitely uh, that anticipatory uh, need for what what's come next is, is very, very important. So let me ask you about the really early stage, because there's a, a ton of confusion over this. And actually, most people are diagnosed with MCI, mild cognitive impairment, right? They're not told like the first neuro neurologist or doctor's visit, you're not usually like you did terribly on your MOCA test, you have Alzheimer's. It's usually a sign, they'll say, of mild cognitive impairment. So I've always wondered this, what is it that makes that leap to say it's mild cognitive impairment versus 
you know, now you have Alzheimer's. How do doctors determine that? Yeah, so MCI or mild cognitive impairment is its own entity, its own diagnosis. There is uh, a set of diagnostic criteria for MCI and within MCI or mild cognitive impairment, there's amnestic MCI, non-amnestic MCI. In theory, it's separate from, from Alzheimer's disease because people with MCI by definition do not have Alzheimer's disease. If you look at the DSM-5 uh, criteria for Alzheimer's disease and form dementia, they need to show uh, or demonstrate that they have had a decline in occupational and social functioning. And by definition, people who have MCI do not have that. So they may have memory impairment, uh, both objective and subjective. But when you ask about uh, how they are carrying on their, their usual activities, you know, keeping their appointments, uh, taking their medication, paying their bills, uh, you know, their social activities, they're pretty intact. In fact, if there's a decline in any of those, then in theory, they do not qualify for diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. Um, and not all MCI progress to dementia or Alzheimer's disease, which is another interesting thing. Um, and, and so uh, in a sense, MCI is a, uh, thought to be a precursor uh, or pre-dementia, but, uh, but certainly not all of them progress. And uh, it's distinct as an entity from Alzheimer's disease. So this is a great question that's come in saying, you know, have you seen any patterns in patients that have given clues or are there any blood tests, brain scans, uh, anything like that, that can give any predictable clues as to how someone will advance through the stages? So not diagnosis, but, you know, are there any clearer markers out there that you're looking for as a doctor that's going to say some person, someone's going to progress faster than others? Not at the outset, uh, meaning there are now biomarkers, as you know, both in the cerebrospinal fluid and uh, now developing in the plasma biomarkers. Uh, I haven't seen any good studies that show that, for example, like if you're, uh, you know, uh, amyloid beta levels or uh, PTAL217 is higher than you are going to, to progress uh, more faster. But uh, interesting thing about biomarkers, uh, speaking of biomarkers, is that now that we have these, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies, these prevention trials or uh, trials, disease-modifying therapies, I predict that these biomarkers will be really helpful in terms of uh, predicting who, res who is responding to the to the, the treatment. I mean, um, uh, until until recently, all we had are their, you know, performance in, in cognitive evaluations and, you know, uh, and functional measures, but you know, if we have uh, a reliable way of measuring the the biology of disease, for example, neurofilament light (NFL) is one of the biomarkers that uh, has shown promise in monitoring the progression of the neurodegeneration. So I predict that will be a, a future thing where you can go to your doctor and they will draw blood or get a CSF and saying, you know, your uh, level of this biomarker is stabilized and therefore we're in good shape. And while if it's increasing, you might be like, uh, I think we, do have, we have to do something else. So I think um, I have the most conversations about different stages of Alzheimer's with people who um, have a loved one who are reaching um, a later stage. And the reason behind this is because I believe people want to know um, although they don't put it this way, but how close are we to the end, right? And so, so 
for example, um, you know, you you start to see somebody who has really bad memory loss, like they stop recognizing their loved ones, um, they can't recognize family members anymore, they're losing vocabulary, um, but yet they can still dress themselves or take a shower or something like that. So there's a lot of confusion in that area as to really what stipulates you're reaching the end. Is there is there a way to define that? I mean, it's kind of a hard question to ask, but I, I've often thought of it myself. Yeah, and, and you know, I understand why that's a source of uh, confusion for people because these stages overlap. So for example, uh, you know, uh, you know, ambulation, for example, right? If you think about the typical trajectory of, of dementia, you know, they will be, uh, you know, walking is not affected, Alzheimer's disease specifically, walking is not affected in, in, in mild disease. They walk around, they could, they could uh, walk two, three, four miles a day. Uh, and even in the early stage, they can even do that themselves without getting lost. And once you get to the moderate stage, they could still walk, but it could be a bit slower and they could wander and they get lost, uh, hopelessly lost, uh, even though physically they're still able to ambulate. But when get to, you, you get to the, to the late stage, um, typically what will happen is that you will get uh, people who are really getting slow. They can get fall. They can fall. In fact, a lot of uh, head trauma can happen during that period. And then you get to the late, late stage. Uh, what happens is that they become wheelchair bound or uh, or bed bound even, and they can get pressure source from being on their backs for most of the day. So that's a typical progression. However, there are people who, who don't progress that way, meaning they're ambulatory till the very end. Right. And what may get them in the end, maybe is aspiration pneumonia or or something else altogether. Uh, so it's very difficult to say that, oh, by, you know, it's not like the developmental milestones that you see in children, for example, for those who are, uh, you know, uh, for those who have children, uh, you know, your the pediatrician will say, OK, this is by this many weeks or months that child, child should be able to turn turn uh, on its back or uh, turn to its belly or stand up right. it's that way but the interesting thing is that one of the things that i help my patient understand in terms of that question is when, when is my mom or dad going to lose their ability to swallow or their ability to walk i say roughly think about the the order that uh, an infant gets these um these abilities right so an infant is born with ability to swallow like milk or um, but it can't talk, right? And uh, and it can't walk. Uh, it can't do, you know, calculations or reasoning. So if you think about it, those come in later. So those are the first one generally to get lost. So the swallowing, in my experience, is one of the last ones to go. So once they get uh, aspiration, pneumonias or dysphagia, uh, causing aspiration pneumonia, and some of them, you know, uh, are being offered a, a gastrostomy tube or a D tube. That's why we do not recommend it because typically that's not the problem. The, the problem is that they're already in the last stages of the dementia, and therefore inserting a gastrostomy tube and giving them uh, artificial feeding is not going to change the overall course of the disease. Doctor Tan, how? Um, I mean, you know. We're usually, when we first have someone with Alzheimer's in, a, in the family, the first thing you do is how long, you know, how long will this person live with the disease? And typically, you know, it's maybe six to 10 year range. However, 
there are many stories out there of people who have lived for two decades with um, with neurodegeneration, you know, and which doesn't surprise me because on um, being patient, we interview a lot of people with dementia who have had, you know, a diagnosis for five years plus and who are very still intellectually intact, right? They, they still can perform at a high intellectual level. But my question is really, are you seeing a pattern of how long this disease lasts? Um, I mean, we have an average kind of, but you know, what's your experience as a doctor? I can tell you some patterns that I observe. Um, you know, when we say, uh, you know, five years, eight years, 10 years, it's the, from the point of diagnosis, right? But in, you know that there are people who get diagnosed really early because they are just hyper aware. Maybe they have a family history and they're already hyper vigilant of their own thinking. And I will just show up and I'm going to get neuropsychology testing every year uh, to know exactly when I get it. So that obviously those people will, will have a longer life expectancy from the time of diagnosis than for someone who come in relatively late in the pathology of the disease. Uh, and therefore those, and, but the, and then the perception is that, oh my God, he progressed so fast. He came from the diagnosis by four years, he was gone. But in reality, maybe we didn't really catch that person uh, early enough to have that five, eight, 10 years. In fact, one pattern that I've seen is that people who are, are highly educated tend to, uh, to present later uh except if they know that they have a family history or something like that and the reason is because they usually have a lot more social resources they also have a lot of cognitive resources to kind of cover up the 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 memory loss and they also have a lot of pride in their in their intellect so they come in later so it's a perception that they progress progress faster but in reality they just coming in later in the course of the disease what about genetics? Um, do we know, like, let's say if somebody is a carrier of um, the APOE4 variant, either having one or two copies, is there any indication that progression will be different than those who don't have uh, the Alzheimer's gene, what's called the Alzheimer's gene, I should say? Um, not, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a good study that look at the, the rate of progression. It's, it's a risk factor, as you know, getting a, if you are, uh, if you have two copies of APOE4 allele, but they don't necessarily will progress, uh, faster. Uh, a lot, the progression really is dependent on a lot of other factors. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, your vascular, uh, burden, so to speak, and, you know, the other medications and other, other things that can, can, and can affect the progression itself. So I, I always ask these questions when we have doctors um, such as yourself on um, what are the type of questions um, we as, you know, people with loved ones with dementia or, or people who have been diagnosed, what should we be asking our doctors to really get the best information and care, especially in, in particular to, to the seven stages as defined, you know, by, by the medical community? I think a, a good conversation that all of us should be having, uh, you know, uh, caregivers, patients, and uh, and uh, physicians and health professionals alike is, is a very simple, what stage of dementia am I in, right? Or my father is in. Is it mild? I mean, keep it simple. Is it, uh, you know, early, late, or mid-stage? Um, and, and not having that conversation means that we are just... Uh, thinking of, of dementia being a monolithic yes or no, but in reality, it isn't. I mean, you wouldn't go to any oncologist who didn't say, 
what stage of of cancer uh, you're in, right? Because it leads to to uh, to another discussion of what's what's to come next and what what uh, needs to happen. I think caregivers need to be very specific with the doctors about what they have observed. Uh, because like I said, the stages are very much symptom-based and function-based. So if you say, okay, uh, doctor, since our last visit, uh, six months ago, I've now observed that my, my mother is getting lost now, whereas you, she used to be walking around the neighborhood, no problem now that she's getting lost. Uh, sometimes it would be uh, uh, freezing out and she would be wearing shorts. So that's that tells me that this person has progressed from mild to moderate. Right, because the, the the two examples I gave you are are symptoms more of moderate stage, and then that will then initiate conversations about what treatments are appropriate. For example, memantine, memantine or namenda is not FDA approved for mild dementia. It's not. Uh, it's only effective and and approved for moderate to late stage dementia. So just having that simple conversation will clue in the the physician that, huh, I think we just progressed from mild to moderate stage. Let me add in memantine to see if this will be an appropriate add-on therapy to the the nepizil, let's say. How good are cognitive tests in predicting what stage you may be in? Well, that is generally, especially in research trials and in uh, in clinical trials, that is what we based it on, right? Because of because this is uh, uh, we need some a measure of objective of objectivity in in the progression. Um, so, is it um, is it helpful? Yes, it is. Uh, because uh, whenever I see someone, let's say every six months or every year, I would do a standardized. Uh, cognitive tests, whether it be a MOCA or uh, or a short blessed test, and I will look at their previous performance and I write in detail what items they missed and and how they did now compared to to previous, because that will help me determine if I'm seeing objective signs of evidence. But I also ask specifically for subjective signs of progression, like I mentioned, what are the things that they were able to do six months ago or a year ago that they're not able to do now. So those are things I would like. I would put those, uh, this these pieces of information together, these data points, and then come up with uh, with a with a with a diagnosis of the the stage of dementia, and then have an appropriate conversation based on the stage of the dementia. So every time I have to admit, every time um, at an earlier stage, I don't do it now. But I every time I saw my mother, I would give her a MOCA test on my own just because I was curious. And you know the. How she performed on that depended a lot on her mood, right? And whether she was tired or, you know. So I've often questioned how good um, indicators those tests alone are. And so what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You have to kind of put the whole picture together, right? And they're really just one tool. But I have to say, on some days, she scored really well. And other days, she scored horribly. So to me, like, if you do those enough, then how really accurate are they, you know? Yeah, so um, as you know, there are practice effects. If I do it very frequently, then they yeah. would uh, get better at that task, but not necessarily mean that they're getting better to dementia itself. Uh, but there's also, uh, you know, good days and bad days, right? So if they didn't sleep well that night or they just, you know, took a medication, uh, you know, earlier before the exam. So I take I take that into account. Uh, I don't take the 
the the score as gospel truth that oh they just progressed based on this or they improved or they didn't get worse i think uh you really have to take into consideration consideration the, the total picture and that's why having caregivers like yourself give me an idea of what's happening just like a blood pressure you know if i take a blood pressure and it's elevated i'm not going to say oh you have high blood pressure i'm going to i i say why don't you check your blood pressure at home uh three days a week write it down blood pressure diary send it to me and then we'll make a decision on what happens it's the same thing with with memory memory diary will be helpful in terms of having informing the clinician of what's going on in the home that may not be seen in the clinic right i've often thought that our um our smartphones were the best assessment tools because you know on the mocha test how they give you a clock and you have to and my mom as she progressed finds that more and more difficult because because First of all, it's many layers of information, and you know the 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 where the uh, uh, clock arms are pointing to aren't exactly the exact number, right? So it could be ten past, whatever, whatever. Same thing with a smartphone. There's so many layers to get in and and apps to use that I find actually like she went from being able to operate her iphone to just now she couldn't she couldn't even turn it on you know so i often think of that layered approach like recognizing how many different layers there are and if you can actually um respond to thinking about different different layers of thought at one time is 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 a good predictor but that's just my very amateur sense i don't know if there's any logic to that there is, and that's an astute observation. Um, uh, certainly, uh, you know. So if you say, you know, uh, you know, heat this food in the microwave, and that means this, it's a multiple step process, right? So that's not just memory. That's also executive function, right? Because your executive function tells you to plan and sequence things. So if someone has uh, more frontal dementia, and their memory might be fine. They might remember how to take out the the food from the microwave and then take out the wrapper and then and then but then it's like okay what's the next how do i operate this so that's an, a different cognitive function and speaking of clocks the clocks are very interesting i really like the clock but at some point it will lose your their utility because then the newer generation uh, millennials certainly um, are not so keen with the clocks right so uh, so that's very much generational. In fact, maybe when uh, the millennials uh, reach the age of dementia, it will be like, here's a smartphone. Why don't you make a phone call or do a, an Internet search? Actually, that's a really interesting point. Like, I wonder if my kids could even like you know, draw a clock today. No one really uses clocks anymore, per se, you know, in the way that we, we grew up using them. So, um, Dr. Tam, thank you so much. This is really helpful, and it's always so helpful to hear a doctor's perspective and you know what you're really um, anticipating with your patients and and sharing the insights with us. So, thank you so much um, for joining us. And I'm sure we may get more questions, which we'll, we will uh, redirect to you if other people um, want to ask questions after this interview is over. But thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Deborah. So if you um, missed any of this interview or you want to, um, you know, revert back to parts of it, we always post them on beingpatient.com. 
please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Um, if you go to our website, beingpatient.com, you'll see a big sign up. Um, sign up for our newsletter because within those newsletters, we are always letting you know about upcoming talks. These talks are truly meant for people like you who may have questions and not access to the experts. We're bringing the experts to our platform so you can ask any question you want. So thanks very much for joining us. Don't forget to sign up uh, for our newsletter and we'll see you next time.